Hello and welcome to the Australia Indonesia Centre and our webinar in collaboration with Universitas Hazanudin and as part of the AIC's Partnership for Australia and Indonesia Research Program or PAIR. I acknowledge the traditional owners, the Kulin Nations of the land on which the centre's office is located and the City of Melbourne from where I am hosting today's webinar and joined in the same city by very special guest Professor Peter Doherty. We pay our respects to elders past, present and future. The aim of the Australia Indonesia Centre is to build on the links between the two countries. In fact, it's not just our aim, it's our mission. We bring together researchers, industry, civil society and governments to discuss some of the important issues that we're all grappling with. And we're delighted to be working with Universitas Hadnudin and wishing them congratulations, in fact, on their 64th anniversary. Salamatatas dies natales ke enam empat. A little later on, we do hope to hear from Professor Doya Ariatina Pulubuhu, who is the rector of the university. But before we do that, we're going to meet our very special guest, Laureate Professor Peter Doherty, patron of the Doherty Institute and immunologist. And of course, a Nobel Prize winner. He understands immunology, he understands virus, and he understands the transmission uh, more than many people in his scientific field at the moment. So it's an absolute delight to have him join us. Before um, I have start chatting with you though, Professor, we have a little story for you. And this is from Dr. Sudirman Nasir, who is an AIC uh, fellow, senior fellow, and uh, this explains why Professor Doherty is no stranger to Indonesia. And we note that many Indonesian graduates from Australian universities are joining us for the webinar today. So I'd firstly like to introduce Dr. Sudi, um, who's going to tell us a little bit about the very important Australia-Indonesia connection. Welcome, Bart Sudi. Thank you, Helen. And as Helen mentioned, uh, actually Professor Doherty is no stranger to uh, many of us. This event is also supported by the Indonesian uh, Young Academy of Sciences and a few of my colleagues in the academy are currently working with uh, some colleagues at the Doherty Institute. And also this event uh, is supported by the Indonesian uh, Association of uh, Alumni, uh, Australian Alumni. And uh, many of us did our master's or PhD at the University of Melbourne and enjoyed Professor Deherty's talk during the PhD colloquium or during the Festival of Ideas. And in fact, those lectures are uh, very inspiring. And to many of us, it is one of our best memory in Melbourne and in Australia. So thank you very much, Professor Deherty, for your uh, time in joining us to celebrate Universitas Hassanuddin 64th anniversary. Back to Helen. And we're going to hear from Pak Suri later. He will be taking the second session where we also have two other very special guests and I'll mention those a bit later. But to Professor Doherty first, and of course we wish to talk to you about the coronavirus, Professor, but as you just heard, there are Indonesians who have strong affection for you. Did you realise you had a connection with Indonesia? Um, not specifically. Um, I should say happy birthday to, to the university. Uh, I didn't realize it was the 64th birthday, but um, 
but I've been around so long, I'm turning 80 next month, that I think of myself as part of the living fossil record of the science of immunology. So, so many people know me and uh, uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a great feeling to have that sense that you have been of some value to people uh, in general. Professor, we have many young Indonesian scientists joining us for this event. Can you perhaps just tell us a bit about the challenges you faced when you were a young scientist and, and what you had to do to keep working through them to get to you know, the level of accomplishment that you did? Well, I, I didn't set out to be a laboratory scientist and certainly not a medical scientist because I trained in veterinary science. And I made that decision when I was 16 years old, which is probably far too young to make any decision about the rest of your life. But that's the way things worked then. And uh, I, um, I got into research very early. I, I went into veterinary science from the idea of doing research to help improve food production. If I was going to do that now, I suppose I'd probably go into the plant rather than the animal sciences. But I was growing up in the state of Queensland to our north which is a big animal production state now as then. And so that's uh, the direction I took. And I, for 10 years, I did research on virus infections. I became very interested in viruses and immunity uh, because of uh, various influences on me. Uh, and for 10 years, I worked on virus infections and virus diseases in domestic animals. And then um, went for a brief time to the John Curtin School of Medical Research in Canberra in Australia after completing a PhD in Scotland and, uh, and there uh, wanting to learn about cell-mediated immunity before I took a big job in the government research organisation, the CSIRO, uh, Rolf Zinkenagel and I made a very big discovery and that took me across into basic biomedical research, uh, led to the Nobel Prize 22 years later and, uh, and set my career as being a basic biomedical research scientist. And after the Nobel Prize, of course, I also became much more prominent as a public figure, which is what the Nobel Prize does to you. And uh, I spent a lot of time trying to do science communication and talking to the general public about the importance of science, while at the same time uh, still being involved heavily in laboratory research initially driving a lot of that research still myself, and then later stepping back and letting my younger colleagues take the lead. And what was it like, Professor, when you received the Nobel Prize? What, can you remember the feeling of that moment? Yes, well, of course, it's an extraordinary experience. And um, being from the Australian culture, which um, tends not to be a uh, self-celebratory culture. We tend to be, tend to be not to be like that. Um, uh, I'd always had the sense that uh, getting the Nobel Prize, they must have got it wrong, you know. So, <laughs> so it was a big surprise to be on the stage uh, with the King of Sweden uh, to be receiving this award. I knew we'd done the work and we were, we were perfectly justified in receiving it. We had made a major contribution. We'd been very lucky. We made a very big discovery and then we, uh, we made a number of good guesses because the technology wasn't there to really prove some of what we were saying. We made a number of good guesses on what it meant and we got it right. And so it was a major change and it really changed the face 
of immunology and uh, it's had a lot of implications all through for all sorts of areas. So, um, so it, uh, but it was a surprise and I knew nothing about what happened being a Nobel Prize winner. I'd never, I'd, I'd met Nobel Prize winners, of course, as we all do within our scientific community, but I, I had no idea of what, what that actually meant in a personal sense. It's not easy being a scientist. I mean, it would have been difficult back then, but now, you know, all the attention is on people with what are seen as exciting careers, careers that put you on video, careers that other people aspire to. Um, the role of scientist and researcher does not come up a lot. However, we've seen during the coronavirus how fundamentally important it is to have good scientists. What would you say to aspiring Indonesian scientists about persevering with their study and their career path? Well, science is a—it's it, a passion, uh, as any—any um, any area where you uh, go in depth with something is, which is what what a discovery scientist like me does. I like um, finding things out. I like looking at new data. And of course, over the last years, I haven't been generating that data myself. It's been my younger colleagues who are doing that. It's a kind of partnership. Uh, I learn from them and they learn from me. And, um, and that excites me and I find it very interesting. Uh, I'm not really interested in being in the public arena. It, I do it uh, because I'm, I'm actually reasonably good at public communication and I'm able to speak to people and I think I try to tell the truth when I speak and there's, there's sometimes a lack of truth around at the moment, as we all know. Um, so I don't, I don't uh, in any sense begrudge people who are celebrities. In fact, I think being a celebrity is actually pretty horrible for many people. And uh, I, I think uh, that suited me. I like to analyze, I like to write, I like to think, I like to try and understand what's behind things. And if you've got that sort of science, sort of personality, then uh, science suits quite well because in science, we actually find out things that nobody ever knew before. As a writer, I've written six books since the Nobel Prize and um, another two in, in the progress. And uh, um, I like to write, but I realize when I write about areas other than science, everything I say has been said before by somebody. But science, when you discover something new, you say something that nobody has ever said or known before. Now, maybe not many people care about what you've discovered, uh, but it's, it's a great feeling. And there's no greater excitement, in fact, than, than finding something new and understanding something better. That's a great way of putting it. Thank you, Professor Doherty. We're going to come back to you and then we're going to bring uh, Professor Jamal from Universitas Hazanudin into the room so that we can have a conversation. Um, before we do that, though, I would like to introduce you to Professor Doya Ariatina Pulubuhu, the Rector of Universitas Hazanudin, and also a sociologist. And she's going to welcome Professor Doherty and also present some of her views on COVID-19 from a sociological perspective. Thank you for joining us and please. Um, Thank you, Helen. Lovely to meet you. Salamat kanal, yeah? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. And good morning. 
ladies and gentlemen, uh, to uh, that uh, participate in the very uh, highly enlightening event. For the beginning, as a rector of Universitas Sasanuddin, I would like to particularly uh, welcome and express our gratitude to Laureate Professor Peter Doherty, who willing to spare his precious time to, with us, discuss about the importance of science uh, in COVID-19. And also I'd like to greet to Helen Braun from AIC and uh, Eugene Sebastian and other person from AIC and also to the uh, uh, important persons uh, as the speakers, Professor Sangkot Marsuki, Professor Irawan Yusuf, and Professor uh, Jamaluddin Jompa, and all participants uh, who attend this uh, very uh, enlightening discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, we are uh, very happy, of course, as we know, Professor Doherty is uh, one among the excellence and suitable persons in the world to talk about COVID-19. Thank you, Professor Doherty. Selamat datang and I'm very happy have to see you even though virtually. And I hope you are in good health and we are very pleased uh, to celebrate our Anniversary. This month is our anniversary uh, of Universitas Sasanuddin for the 64 with a great scholar uh, such as you, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, well, Universitas Sasanuddin is uh, one among leading university in Indonesia and the, the best in eastern part of Indonesia. As other university, we also try to uh, play a very, uh, have a good role in research, uh, including uh, several topics that are important in the currently, biomedical and health, and also social and economic issues that dealing with uh, COVID-19 or uh, dealing with the crisis affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. And indeed, um, this COVID is challenge to us as a scientist to uh, involve and play a very important uh, role how to solve this problem. As for the Indonesian itself, we are so sad that until now we reach about 250,000 cases and a lot of them are dead. So, as academician and scientists, we have a calling. We are called to involve in solving the crisis. Ladies and gentlemen, especially to our uh, distinguished Professor Doretti, I'm a social DCS, as Helen said uh, before. I would like to uh, re-emphasize or to highlight that uh, aside of sciences, uh, 
action as a, such as social solidarity is also a best uh, modality in coping or dealing with the crisis. Yes, science like biomedical, health, economy, and uh, social science have to be uh, integrated together. Science and humanity will humanities will enable us uh, to do uh, several uh, recommendation or suggestion to prevent the increasing other crisis affected by the pandemic. COVID-19 or Corona. And uh, you, we know uh, the current issue is not only limited to the health issues, but the effect of the COVID-19 that uh, face differently among the people, especially for the, the one who has uh, comorbid with comorbid comorbidities and in in immunosuppressive system or the group of poor people or the group of people who stay in the remote area that have lack access to the health facility. So it's now becoming a big issues. So I think a multidisciplinary approach, it would be the best solution science come from different uh, perspective have to engage together in order to find out uh, the best solution indeed until now we are still waiting the discovery of vaccine that's still to be uh, developed but during that we can prevent the uh, the larger impact of the crisis to my interest in Indonesia itself, now the increasing the number of people with the the new uh, indicator become uh, a problem to us for the most to the government because uh, most people lost more, a lot of people they lost their job and then a lot of villagers they cannot. Uh, have access to gather treatment and many issues, especially uh, social issues, are coming out affected by the pandemic. So, yeah, at the same time in Indonesia, we are facing with a new uh, big event that uh, is a politic political agenda. We all will be some areas will be have the uh, the pemilu uh, pilkada to choose the best uh, leaders. At the same time, it will be affect to inc the increase of the passion of COVID, of course. So, ladies and gentlemen, I think many many issues could be arise when we talk about this pandemic. So. I would like to again to thanks to the time of uh, our laureate professor Dorothy for your uh, willingness to join and thanks to share your perspective and also 
to other speakers, Prof. Sangkot, Marsuki, and Prof. Irawan, as well Prof. Jamadin Jompa. And I believe uh, this discussion will be uh, enlightened, will be resulted with a very excellent uh, perspective that we can raise a very excellent uh, recommendation, of course, to our government and to the people. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on behalf of uh, Universitas Sasanudin would like to gratitude to AIC as well for your uh, facilitation to make this uh, discussion is happen. And thank you very much for your time to collaborate to collaborate with Universitas Sasanudin. And I hope all participants and among them, they are the very excellent researchers who also uh, have a good information to be shared in this discussion. Thank you very much, Helen, and let's stay safe and health, of course. Terima kasih. Wabillahi taufiq wal hidayah. Wassalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Terima kasih, Ibu Duya. Thank you so much for your words, your insight, and congratulations again to the university. Thank you for your time, and we will see Ibu Duya a bit later on. Going to go back now to Professor Peter Doshi, who is with Melbourne University, which is also a partner university of the Australia-Indonesia Centre. So it's great to see two partner universities in the same room working uh, with our pair researchers. Professor Doherty, we just heard then of some of the challenges facing Indonesia with tackling this disease, some very huge societal challenges. Um, to get your scientific perspective about this disease, how complex is it compared to a, a usual coronavirus, if there is such a thing? What, what are your... What are your comments around just how challenging this virus is? Uh, the virus, um, this virus is different from any we've encountered before, including, so far as I'm aware, the coronaviruses. Uh, until the first SARS pandemic, uh, epidemic of 2002-2003, those of us in the medical research area did not think a lot about the coronaviruses. There are some bad coronavirus diseases in domestic animals that the veterinary researchers look at, but I, even though I have a, back, a deep background there, I, I hadn't taken much notice of them. So SARS, the first SARS, uh, much more lethal than this one, killed about 10% of people. And uh, we realized we were dealing with something rather different, but it came across to us pretty much as a severe viral pneumonia uh, with various complications and so forth. Uh, this infection, when it hit, initially we thought of it as kind of a severe influenza. That's the way uh, we approached it. We thought that the disease itself would be influenza-like. It certainly was a viral pneumonia. We knew it was damaging the lungs and the people when they were dying, were dying essentially from lack of oxygen. Now, in influenza, people die from lack of oxygen because their lungs fill up with fluid and they essentially drown in their own lung fluid. That's what happens. But in this disease, that's not 
seems to be seeming to be what happens. It's also what we call a coagulopathy. And that took some time to understand. It's a, it's a respiratory infection, a pneumonia with severe lung damage, but it's also the virus, unlike influenza, gets into the blood, it infects other organs like the heart and the kidneys and the linings of the blood vessels, the vascular endothelium, and clotting is a big problem. And so people were getting strokes. And the problem with getting oxygen that was killing people wasn't so much due to a lot of fluid in the lung. It was due to the fact there were micro clots in the little blood vessels where the gas exchange occurs to the lung, where, we, where the red blood cell brings along red uh, carbon dioxide and discharges that and picks up oxygen. So it's a very different and much more complicated disease than influenza. And once the doctors started to understand that, once you understand something, then you can do something about it. So once they started to understand that, they started to treat with anticoagulants when people came into hospital and also with anti-inflammatories. And, and in fact, um, if you look at, say, the American experience or and not so much our experience because we didn't have that much experience of it, um, 30 to 50% more people are now surviving just because of better treatments. Uh, not because of specific treatments, but just better treatments. So, so we've made a lot of progress, but, uh, but we've still got a long way to go. Professor, we have a, a question from the audience, which uh, relates somewhat to your answer just then. If we could just put that up on the slide so that the professor can see it as well. That's great. Thank you. And uh, this is from Dr. Fearzan Nainu, who's actually with Universitas Hazanudin saying that, of course, there have been seven coronaviruses reported that have infected human populations. Now, that's what you alluded to just then. The question is, four have been successfully contained by the human immune system. Uh, what are the most important factors that cause the discrepancy about the ones that can be contained and the ones like this one, which are not contained? Well, you know, we've, had, we've lived all along with four human coronaviruses ever since we've been studying virology in the modern context. And these were discovered back in the 1960s. Uh, they are uh, discovered, some of them were discovered in the United States, some in Britain. They were worked on by David Tillerall from the Common Cold Research Centre. They were discovered when people were looking for viruses causing the common cold because they wanted to make vaccines against the common cold. Then they found there are more than 100 different viruses that cause the common cold, including these four coronaviruses. So moving ahead to make vaccines just wasn't feasible. They were actually named by a British electron microscopist, uh, Scottish, in fact, a lady called June Almeida, who first saw them in the electron microscope and saw the corona-like, the crown-like structures on their surface. So um, those uh, human coronaviruses that cause colds, they can cause more severe disease occasionally, but they've never been a major concern for us. They have been studied, but uh, people haven't put a lot of effort into them, and there are relatively few people who worked on them. Uh, we first became really concerned about them when SARS came along in 2002-2003. Um, that was a disease, again, like this, that particularly affects older people. Younger people got off more lightly often, and uh, though it was much more clinically severe than this one across the spectrum. 
Then the MERS virus, uh, it, it came from bats, as this one does, almost certainly, and it came through a little animal called the civet cat to us. These bat infections that are jumping into us, and there are a number of them, including Ebola and Marburg virus, the filoviruses, the Hennepa viruses like Nipah virus that you would know in Indonesia, and uh, also Hendra virus in Australia, uh, generally jumping through an intermediate host into us. Not always, but generally. Then we had the MERS virus that emerged, another coronavirus that emerged in the Middle East about 2012. Uh, it's thought to go from bats to camels to us and then spreads between humans as SARS did. And uh, it got across into Asia, uh, East Asia and so forth. Uh, hasn't gone really global, but uh, I think we've had uh, um, several hundred deaths from this. It's still around. It kills 30% uh, of people, so it's highly lethal, but fortunately is not spreading as much as COVID-2. And now we have SARS-CoV-2. Now it's infecting, it's very infectious, at least as infectious as influenza. Uh, and the understanding of the infection is complicated by the fact that like the first SARS, uh, there are what we call super spreaders. Quite a few people who get infected, we think don't spread very much, but others spread a lot. And uh, these super spreaders are very important in, in the maintaining this virus in nature. Now, the immune system seems to contain this virus uh, pretty well, as it does with the other coronaviruses in younger people. Occasionally it goes wrong. We do get some deaths in younger people. And as we age, we become progressively more susceptible to it. So even in our 50s, we're getting much more susceptible. In our 60s, that's very clear. 70s and 80s and 90s, it's, it's, it's a real, real issue. And of course, we have comorbidities with that vascular uh, component. Uh, high blood pressure is a comorbidity. Age is a comorbidity. Uh, insulin, uh, diabetes is a big problem. Uh, very hard to handle from the point of view of the corticosteroids that are used for treatment. So it's, uh, it is contained uh, pretty much, we think, in younger people, but we do have this incidence of what we call long haulers. These are people who are younger, who maybe have some symptoms, maybe go into hospital, maybe don't, but then they notice that they're having long-term effects, lethargy, uh, uh, lack of ability to exercise, oxygen problems, and some of them have really evidence of very severe uh, heart damage. Now, we don't know how many people are in that category, but I'd say there are a significant number, and I'd say at least the number that are dying may have, uh, but survive and are younger, may have long-term health consequences. We won't know that until we've had more time to really analyze and look. And that, of course, is what's happening now. This, this infection is, remember, it's, uh, it's less than a year old in our experience. And, and we, are, uh, we are still learning an enormous amount. And we will learn an enormous amount from it and advance many things if we take the trouble to really look at what's happened here. And I think we have to do that. Thank you, Professor. Uh, I'd like to bring our, our concurrent guest panelist into the room for you to meet Professor Doherty. And this is Professor Jamal Jompa from Universitas Hazanudin and I'll introduce him to our audience and to you uh, so that you understand who else we are talking to in the room. It's, it's, it's a great panel mm. today, a great lineup of people with expertise in different areas. 
Professor Jamaluddin Jompa is a professor in marine ecology and management and dean of the graduate school at Hazanuddin University or Universitas Hazanuddin. He's also the first president and founder of the Indonesian Young Academy of Science. So not only has an interest in marine scientists, but an interest in encouraging young people into science and research. Thank you very much for your time, Professor Jamaluddin. It's great to have you join the discussion. Um, I, I'm wondering now that you've heard Professor Doherty for a little bit, what question do you have for him based on what you've heard so far? I, I got plenty of questions. <laughs> I'm not sure which one's first, but uh, let me go with the very basic questions. Uh, uh, as the first president of Indonesian Young Academy of Science at that time, uh, when we had a kind of free time uh, outside the rooms, we, we, we look at the sky, we look at the stars, but sometimes we dream of achieving the stars, but of course, some, we need to be realistic. And to be able to dream ourselves to get a Nobel laureate prizes, Sometimes we feel like dreaming of achieving this task. I'm wondering if you can just give us an inspiration, a motivation on whether Indonesian scientists need to still be encouraged to be able to reach for the stars, to be able to really aim for a high quality research, a world-class research, to be one day indeed one first Indonesian will get a Nobel on this. Can you give me a little bit insight on that, Professor Dwight? Well, thank you. Um, I, I did write a book on this uh, with the facetious title, The Beginner's Guide to Winning the Nobel Prize. Yeah. Uh, that, um, that's been translated into many, many languages, mainly because of the title, I think, uh, yeah. which was suggested by the publisher, not by me. Uh, but basically, it, I used that book as an excuse. It was the first book I wrote back in 2005 to talk about the importance of basic science, the importance of investigative science, why it's a worthwhile career for those who have the right personality and the right type of dedication, and why it's so important for society to continue down this theme. We only have to realize uh, what's happened with SARS-CoV-2 to realize how important this is. If our technology had just gone ahead to develop rapid international air travel, which is getting these viruses around the planet very, very quickly now, and is why I think this will not be the last pandemic in the lifetime of many of you. It might be, might be the last one in my lifetime, but in the lifetime of many younger people, I think you will be seeing more pandemics. If our medical science hadn't kept up with that, we'd be in much worse shape. Our medical science is incredibly much better than it was in 2002, or what it was in 1980, when this, the uh, HIV AIDS pandemic kicked off, the other pandemic in the last 40 years. Uh, we, uh, when the Chinese gave out the sequence of this virus on the uh, about 15th of January, shortly after they isolated the virus, they sequenced it as we do now very rapidly because of advances in technology. Now that always also involves advances in engineering, advances in computational uh, biology, advances in, in computers, uh, all sorts of advances lead to that. When they gave out that sequence, people started immediately to make vaccines. 
So from January, when we barely knew about this thing, people are starting to make vaccine candidates using various platforms. And those vaccines have moved ahead with incredible speed for a vaccine. If it had just been a matter of giving product, that is giving what we can actually make as a vaccine, we'd have been giving them now. But of course, we have to test them in humans, make sure they're safe and make sure they work. And so we don't, don't have those answers yet. With regard to the Nobel Prizes, uh, of course, what you need uh, for Nobel Prizes in this type of area, biomedical research in the main, is a sophisticated uh, research environment and, and, uh, and, and a wealthy country that's willing to dedicate resources in that direction. Of course, China is dedicating massive resources in that direction, and the United States has, and, uh, and we do, and in some part, and Europe and all the rest of it. Uh, how much a society should focus on that's another question, and it has to be up to the decisions of uh, policymakers, but we can also all benefit from what happens globally because science is global. Now, personally, I think your area of marine biology and marine science is extraordinarily important, especially in the time of climate change. And we're looking at what happens with the oceans as they warm and they become more acidic. I think that's a massively important area. But there are no Nobel Prizes for marine science, <laughs> no Nobel Prizes for geology. Uh, there are no Nobel Prizes for mathematics. So Nobel Prizes are in a very limited range of area, physics, chemistry, uh, medicine, um, literature, and added later, not, not one of Nobel's original prizes, economics. And of course, the Peace Prize, which is separate. Uh, all the other prizes are awarded in Sweden. The Peace Prize is awarded in uh, Oslo by the Norwegian parliament. And as we all understand, is much more political because those uh, people who select those awardees are trying to influence global policy in many cases by selecting a Nobel Prize winner and bringing them to the fore. Now, with respect to winning Nobel Prizes, there are a lot of fantastic scientists out there uh, doing great, great work. And, and the top ones end up being members of national academies of science and so forth and being recognised by that for their contributions. Occasionally, uh, some of us get lucky uh, we make a discovery and we get it right. And that's what leads, leads to a Nobel Prize. Nobel Prize winners on the whole are people who uh, made an important discovery, which is, of course, has a lot of chance to it, and then took it forward in ways that influenced and changed the way the science is done. Uh, they're, they're called paradigm shifting experiments or studies. Occasionally, you get areas where people systematically go forward and solve a problem that's out there. Uh, that's uh, what we see in physics uh, sometimes, and also in crystallography in our field. Sometimes they solve that problem uh, that's been out there for a long time, but often Nobel Prize winners result from chance discovery. So, so that really means uh, that you have to know your stuff. You have to be working hard. You have to have your eyes and ears open uh, for new things, for the different result, for the different finding that, it, that disproves or, or that, that raises the exception, which may be actually the truth. So there are particular personality uh, characteristics and particular practices that people can develop uh, that help them to be really good at science. Uh, and sometimes uh, someone gets lucky and they end up with a Nobel Prize. Thanks, Professor. So a lot of hard work, a little bit of luck, but luck usually comes from a lot of hard work. 
I think if, um, we're all discovering as we go on in life. Can we just put up the photo of the Doherty Institute just to remind our audience that the, the hard work uh, can lead to having a whole building dedicated to the work that you have a passion for. And this is uh, Professor Doherty in front of the Doherty Institute in Melbourne. And Professor, we have people in the audience who've actually worked with the Doherty Institute, you might like to know. So it is another link between Indonesia and Australia. I'd like to now pick up on something that Professor Jamal mentioned and drawing on, uh, sorry, that Professor Doherty just mentioned about Professor Jamal's experience in marine biology. Um, but Jamal, you led the writing of an important book that was launched in October last year called The Sciences for Indonesia's Biodiversity. And one chapter discussed environmental degradation and how that may lead to a zoonotic pandemic, which is of course zoonotic from animals to humans. That's a very basic explanation. Um, but quite prescient that you wrote that chapter with your co-authors. How do you see the COVID-19 situation from an ecological perspective? Uh, thanks, Helen. Uh, it is hard to explain in a very uh, systematic but in short time. Can I share a little bit of my screen? Only one slide, please. Yes, please do. Okay. Um, and you're talking to, I'm a non-scientist, so if I understand it, you're fine. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, let me... Um, I'm disabled to participate in this. That's fine, take your time. Um, and we're getting questions as well while you while you do that but i'll just uh, have a look at the questions that we're getting up we're getting quite a few we will try and get to them rest assured i will start with this slide um actually showing that what we are talking about as uh, professor Dehorty mentioned about this virus it is actually not independent it is connected to uh, our life with our planet it is connected to the population growth, economic growth, and also industrial growth. I think that's all creating uh, the, the problems that we are facing at the moment. So we do need to understand that in order to resolve virus, I, I hope that we agree that this is not only a virus or viral issues. This is about multi-complex issues. Uh, we need to unravel these civilizations uh, uh, thoroughly, and I hope that uh, we now become more aware of um, the need for uh, working together uh, and the need for uh, improving the quality of our planet. Our planet is actually crying. It is suffering from uh, what we are doing uh, to this planet. We are uh, burning fossil fuel all the time, creating a climate change. We cut the trees off, uh, creating a carbon emission we are producing a lot of pollution so that uh, the whole planet actually are suffering so with this virus i hope that we understand this is connected to what we have been doing to this to this earth professor so, I, i'm sorry to interrupt we can actually put that slide up for you and make it a bit bigger so people can see it so it, it, yeah if you want to stop screen sharing we'll okay. we'll put that slide up for you all right, sorry. Make um, it easier for you. No, no, that's fine. I've just found out we can do that. Tidak apa ya? Tidak apa, tidak apa. Okay, yeah. Silakan ya, Pak. Are this better? Uh, okay. Uh, let me see. Oh, my laptop. Yes. So, uh, 
this uh, this uh, interconnectedness of the world problems uh, actually was laid out by Brown in 2008. And I think um, when we talk about virus uh, viral of this COVID-19, the cause problem, as Professor Dehoti uh, mentioned, farewell. Uh, I just wanted to emphasize again that this is uh, linked to what people have been doing to the earth. Uh, the conclusion there is that the population growth, economic growth, uh, uh, industrial growth has caused uh, a lot of problems, pollution, uh, climate change, and also uh, so social problems because of global capitalization, create poverty, and so on and so on. Deforestation is happening all the time and in marine sectors because this is what we call uh, common property. Then we are experiencing what we call a tragedy of the common. Overfishing happening everywhere. So the balance of the ecosystem and become a broken apart. So, and I think that's the beginning of, uh, if I can move to the next slide, okay. I promised one slide, but just to make sure that uh, what, we, what we talk about zoonosis, I think everybody knows, but the problem there is really uh, why these germs, not only virus, but also bacteria and the rest, actually transmitted to human. Ideally, this is not, you know, this part of the nature, we can live in harmony but because we have created problems, um, sorry, uh, I didn't move my slide here. Yeah. Then this is uh, uh, really uh, special for climate change that might trigger mutation of the gene, uh, recombination of the gene, and also the alternation of morphology of, of these uh, viruses and, and also other germs. So I think, uh, Helen, um, uh, you're right, this is. Uh, and disconnected. This is uh, really uh, interconnected uh, uh, problems uh, to the virus. And uh, I do this as an environmentalist. Uh, we, uh, uh, you know, increase or improve our awareness that we need to take care of this planet better. Uh, and for Indonesia, uh, we need to be aware that we are actually what we call the natural laboratory uh, of, of doing research because we are the richest biodiversity combining with the terrestrial and the earth. If you can go to the next slide, my last slide, is actually we are the richest. So I hope that this is also can trigger our adrenaline as Indonesian to uh, utilize to the next slide, please. To, yes, to optimize our capacity in, in really using this biodiversity as a comparative advantage, as Professor Dehoiti mentioned, not only marine, but terrestrial biodiversity, maybe then we can uh, develop a solution for the rest of the world, uh, especially in, in addressing the pandemic, uh, and just that what, what, what we're seeing at the moment. Thanks, Helen. I hope that answers your question. That's fantastic. Yes, it did. Thank you very much, Professor. And then, you know, given what, uh, given what you have said about the role of ecology and Professor Doherty has alluded to climate change and these new factors that have to be taken into account. We have a question that I think uh, is relevant from John Weaver, who says he's a veterinarian working on emerging infectious diseases. Uh, what does Professor Doherty and also Professor Jamal, I think, what do you both see as the best options for reducing the likelihood of future pandemics uh, and addressing the political lack of commitment to long-term visioning. Well, there's two questions there. I don't know how much control you have over politics. You're welcome to answer that. But none, none of us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Over politics, and I'm not even sure the politicians do a lot of the time. Uh, they're subject to so many different influences, and 
and, and, and pressures. Um, and we have to have some sympathy for them on that, though not total sympathy. Um, I, I, what Professor Jamal has said is absolutely spot on. My other great passion uh, uh, since the Nobel Prize has been trying to get action on climate change and on greenhouse gas emissions. And I think uh, what I try to convince people of is exactly what he's been saying, that we are all part of interconnected ecosystems and that the health of those ecosystems will ultimately determine the health and in fact the survival of us as a species. And it's as brutal as that, because we're now getting into very, very dangerous territory with climate change. We've recognized for a long time in the area of One Health, which looks at uh, the whole spectrum of health across the planet, animals, plants, and all the rest of it in its broadest sense. We've, we've all recognized how important and how deleterious, for instance, forest clearance is and increasing hunger. And of course, the pressures of increasing population is on the emergence of these infections. Uh, that's part of what's happening. And uh, it's extremely dangerous, in fact. And of course, as climate change rolls on, uh, mosquito-borne diseases, which have been moving uh, from Africa and Southern Asia to the Americas over the last uh, couple of, uh, many decades, in fact. And we can include in that dengue, chikungunya virus, um, West Nile virus, uh, Zika virus, and so forth. Those infections will move further north and south from the equator and further up into the cooler hill and plateau regions. So that's another risk factor. And then we've got also got disease factors resulting from flooding of sewage systems and all sorts of things. And then of course, the massive effects on the oceans, which are so central to providing the oxygen that we need for life. So trying to get politicians and policymakers and business people thinking in those terms is extremely difficult. Uh, and we need to keep at it, and we need to keep pushing, and we need to keep the pressure up. And, uh, actually, oh. with respect to ecosystems, uh, I've been passionate about this for a very long time because of my early veterinary training, where we look very much at the, at the production of animals and, and, the, and the interaction with the landscape and soils and plants and all the rest of it. I actually think of the human body as a set of linked, interconnected ecosystems. We are complex organisms, extremely complex. And uh, the immune system is kind of the uh, uh, patrolling police, if you like, of that complex ecosystem that we call us. Thank you, Professor Doherty. And uh, some children in the background, Maafia, Anakanak Saya, Divalakang, Ada work from home situation school. Um, Professor Jamal, could I get a response from you? And then, I, and then we're running out of time, unfortunately. So if you can Thanks, answer that, and then I'll invite Igor Dwyer back. Thank you. Thanks, and I, I like to, uh, I, I try to be short. Uh, talking about politician, I do believe uh, politician is human being. Uh, politician also homo sapiens. We are in the same species. We live in the same planet. So I do hope that I think science and politician need to work together, uh, communicate better so we can create the, the, the world better uh, together. We cannot just allow the politicians to uh, you know, work in one direction and the scientists work separately in the different directions. So I do hope that we, you know, we, we're facing this problem already, that there is no way that we can resolve this problem without understanding better the problems, the complicated issues, the complicated problems you need the, the, the very comprehensive solution. And that's where science and scientists need to work together as well. So Helen, I believe improving communication between scientists and politicians will 
really produce a more uh, uh, and better and positive uh, to this uh, to this world. Thank you. Professor, I will just pick up on that a little bit because we know that Indonesia is facing a particularly challenging moment with the coronavirus. Do you think that the politicians are listening more now to the scientists about this uh, problem and, and how to tackle it best? Yeah, I think um, uh, we are lucky that uh, because Indonesia is a huge area, uh, many area uh, at the provincial level, we, uh, for example, Hasanud University is a very respectful university in South Sulawesi and the governor actually really listen to uh, uh, our scientists, not only from UNHAS, of course, but all scientists. Uh, I know that in the central government, sometimes they are difficult dealing with because this is not only about health situation, this is about economy, this is about social problem, this is about political situation. So uh, maybe that's uh, the problems when they have a different perspective on, 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 the, on, the, on the same uh, object. So uh, I think um, Indonesia has been uh, quite well uh, manage how to really uh, put science into uh, solving the problems. Of course, it's not as best as what we want as a scientist, but we keep telling the government, we keep uh, talking to the government, and I hope, I do hope that we keep, uh, you know, doing this uh, uh, in the near future so that we can provide a better solution. And I believe the government would listen to scientists, especially if we are telling this, you know, really without any conflict of interest at all, but to solve the problems comprehensively. And briefly to you, Professor Doherty, to finish, do you think that the role of science is now better appreciated because of what coronavirus is showing us? I think that, our, that basically biomedical science on the whole uh, is not regarded as in any sense threatening by politicians. Uh, basically, everyone wants better health. It's a popular issue within the community. Uh, nobody wants worse health, obviously. And uh, to get action uh, in Australia uh, on, on the health front uh, has always been uh, much easier than getting uh, action on the environmental front because often the environmental issues are in conflict with economic activity. And, and that's where the real problem comes in. And, and with uh, basically our own behavioural changes, our own, our own behaviour, our, our desire to drive a big fast car and, and to burn away and all the rest of it. So, so there's no made basic concept on the medical side except that it's expensive, but people do want to live healthy lives. And medical science has been incredibly successful that across the planet, people are living longer and healthier lives because of medical science and the advances in understanding heart disease particularly and various other problems that aren't just first world diseases but are increasingly uh, very important in other worlds uh, in, in, across the planet and across everyone. So that, that's fairly straightforward, but, but with trying to ch change uh, thinking. And I think we need somehow, we need a basic switch to turn in everyone's head and to say, for people to say to themselves, well, really the most important thing is that we can go on living and that it, we can have a sustainable life, a life where we see the benefits around us, the benefits of the natural beauty and splendor and the benefits we get from nature. 
which are very basic down to pollinating bees, for instance. Yeah. We can't do without them. We need all these species. We can't kill all the insects. We can't kill all the bats. The bats move all sorts of nutrients around and they're involved in pollination and moving seeds and all the rest of it, that we're all interlinked. And so if we could kind of switch the thinking in people's heads to somehow say, well, what's important to us is sustainability. What's important to us is community. What's important to us is, well, we have to get enough to eat and we have to have somewhere to live and so forth, but we really don't have to drive the fanciest car and all the rest of it. What's important to us is to have a sustainable economy, a circular economy, where things aren't just extracted, but they're reprocessed. That's what needs to happen, because the politicians are only a reflection of the body politic, which is us. And so scientists, um, sociologists, economists, whoever we are, we have to try and influence that pro process so that basically our species and many other species can continue in the long term. Because if we keep going down the present road, we know that many species are becoming extinct and I do not think we should think that we will be an exception. Sobering words indeed, um, but good words. Thank you so much, Professor Doherty and Professor Jamal as well for that conversation. Absolutely delightful to talk to you and have your insights as well at a critical moment in, in the globe and how we operate and how we respond to things. Um, that's where we'll have to leave our discussion with Professor Doherty. I'm going to ask Ibu Dwyer, um, Professor Dwyer, to say a few words. Before I do, just to let you know that we have another hour coming up uh, in Bahasa Indonesian, and there are two very, very special guest speakers there as well. Professor Sankot Mazuki, AM, former president of the Indonesian Academy of Sciences and the Eichmann Institute for Molecular Biology, and Professor Dr. Erwan Yusuf, who was formerly the Dean of the Faculty of Medicine at Universitas Hazemudin. Thank you again to our guest speakers and uh, Professor Iludwia, could you please kindly say your closing word? Thank you, Helen. Thank you. So uh, thank you also of course to Professor Doherty for your very uh, excellent uh, perspectives and also uh, the share from Professor Jamaldini Jompa. Yes, when we talk about uh, COVID-19, uh, to my understanding, it's very complicated because we are dealing, of course, with the discovery of vaccine, innovation, technology, and so on. But uh, in my perspective, uh, in, for Indonesian cases, it's very complicated because uh, we are not dealing about these items as I mentioned before, but we are now facing about the lack of uh, discipline of the most of the people in following the health protocols, including, of course, not only for the ordinary one of the people, but the officials, the government officials as well. We can sometimes it's so in the picture that there are also without using maskers and uh, they are not giving a good example as well. At the same time, we, as I mentioned before, the, prob the problem becoming more problematic when we facing uh, on the December for the election day in several provinces and, uh, and regencies in Indonesia. Now the debate uh, among the governments itself are 
are very as uh, critical issues. Uh, some uh, suggest to uh, postpone, and another, uh, including the president as well, would like to keep uh, on the date to do the election or Pilkada. So now the problem is uh, how prepare our the, the uh, ordinary people to join with the election, but still on the discipline for following the health protocol. Otherwise, it can become worse. So it's another issue from from uh, social sciences, of course. And an issue, another issue in Indonesia, Helen, it's good to be discussed. When we talk about the how the response of government uh, in economic recovery for the people, because when we talk uh, about uh, to help the health pe uh, people health, then we have to to see how the access uh, in general, it's not the same between the city and the village, the, the urbans and the villagers, uh, they are very uh, various in Indonesia. So uh, that's another, some issue that uh, I would like, uh, it's very also important to be, to be discussed in a social science perspective. And when we talk about solidarity, social capital, we are lucky and very happy uh, uh, giving example. Indonesia, uh, in our university, have a task force for handling the COVID-19. And then we are so happy because the public donation coming is a lot and uh, we can uh, manage uh, to help the people, the hospitals uh, from that donation. So it's uh, another, another happy, uh, happy story about uh, when dealing with the COVID-19. Now we recognize that uh, solidarity and social capital is uh, still uh, the best uh, model for the Indonesian people. I think, uh, thank you again, Helen and Professor Loretti and Professor Jamal Jompa. And also, we are delighted to hear, of, so of course, from Sankot and Prof. Irawan perspective. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. So nice to have you on our webinar. And again, thank you, Professor Doherty. Lovely to meet you. Thank you. And Professor Jamal. Thank you so much. Thank you. Goodbye.